0: Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg
1: and I'm Patricia
0: and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in January in our Cosmic Diary.
1: When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark And remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you are using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red light vision mode.
0: After the festivities of Christmas and New Year, some of you may be thinking about what to look forward to next. Well, January hosts a whole range of spectacular astronomical events to keep you entertained during these winter nights.
1: On the night of the 3rd of January and early morning of the 4th, the Quadrantids meteor shower will reach its peak. This is one of the best annual meteor showers along with the Geminids in December and the Perseids in August which have a high meteor rate. Although the maximum rate for the Quadrantids is 50 to 100 meteors per hour, you're likely to see far fewer unless you have ideal conditions like dark skies and the radiant high in the sky. Unlike the Perseids and Geminids whose peak activity can last up to a day, The Quadrantids have a very narrow peak, just a few hours. So the best time to look is around 2am on the 4th of January when the radiant will be in the northeast and because the moon will be in its thin waning crescent phase, there won't be any moonlight to interfere. Scan the skies in all directions using your eyes and remember to wrap up warm.
0: The Moon reaches New Moon on the 6th of January, and Venus also reaches its greatest western elongation on this day too. At greatest elongation, Venus is at its furthest from the Sun from our perspective, making it the best time to look for this planet. You can spot Venus over the southeastern horizon just before the Sun rises. It will be easily visible with just your eyes appearing as a bright point-like object. Hence, Venus is often called the Morning Star.
1: We hope for clear skies on the 21st as the moon takes the stage in its full moon phase. This will occur in the early hours but the moon will still appear full the night before on the 20th. Due to the moon's elliptical orbit, sometimes it's at its closest perigee and other times at its furthest apogee position from the earth in its monthly orbit. When the moon is within 90% of its closest approach and this coincides with the full moon, We call it a supermoon. January's full moon is the first of three supermoons in 2019 and it will appear to be slightly brighter and bigger due to this. Sometimes though, the moon also appears bigger when close to the horizon, an effect known as moon illusion. Our brains judge things near the horizon to be farther away compared to when they are above us in the sky. So, to accommodate this false extra distance, our brains make things look bigger, when in reality they aren't.
0: But it's not just the supermoon we have to feast our eyes on. The 21st is also the date of a total lunar eclipse. This is when the Sun, Earth and Moon are perfectly aligned with the Moon in the Earth's shadow. In this position, the Moon should appear dark and not be visible, but the Earth's atmosphere scatters the Sun's light. Blue light is scattered away in all directions but red light isn't scattered as much, meaning it essentially bends around the Earth and onto the Moon, causing a lunar eclipse to appear red. The partial lunar eclipse begins around 3.30am when the Moon will appear in the southwest. However, the total lunar eclipse will start around 4.45am and last about an hour with the maximum point of the eclipse at 512 with the Moon now further to the west. An amazing sight not to be missed, but you'll have to be awake in the small hours of the 21st of January to see it.
1: Just a day later, in the early hours of the 22nd of January, look for the conjunction of Venus and Jupiter in the southeastern sky before the sun rises. A conjunction is when two astronomical objects meet in the same part of the sky. Venus and Jupiter will lie along the same ecliptic longitude, or share the same right ascension, with Venus sitting slightly higher above Jupiter. At this time you'll be able to see both planets together using just your eyes and using a pair of binoculars they'll be in the same field of view. However, they won't be close enough to fit in the same field of view through a telescope. It's definitely worth a look though. They're the two brightest naked eye planets making them an easy pair to spot but they'll be quite close to the horizon, so make sure you're away from any tall buildings or trees that may obstruct your view.
0: If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them in to at ROG astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our cosmic news. Okay, welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce to you uh, Patricia, our new colleague who's going to be taking over from Dara for the next uh, few months in the Look Up podcast. So welcome to the Royal Observatory and to Look Up.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: And we are now going to be doing the Cosmic Cosmic News part of our podcast. Uh, Every month, uh, Patricia and I will choose a a story that's broken within the last month, um, one that we think would be nice for you to hear. We'll tell you a little bit about it, and then you'll have your chance to vote on your favourite news story um, on our Twitter poll. uh, That's at ROG Astronomers. So, Patricia, your first month, what have you got for us?
1: Well, i decided to keep things close to home in this first podcast that I'm participating in. And I've actually chosen to talk about an event that happened in our solar system's backyard. And that was the historic New Horizons fly pass of the distant Kuiper Belt object, Ultima Thule, which took place on January
0: 1st. Oh, fantastic.
1: Now, New Horizons zoomed past Ultima Thule at more than 32,000 miles per hour, or for those more familiar with SI units, like myself, at (laughs) 51,000 kilometers per hour. And it came within 2,200 miles, or 3,500 kilometers, of Ultima Thule. So, to put things into perspective, New Horizons flew by Ultima Thule closer than it did to Pluto. Mm. So, that was pretty exciting. And this flyby is the most distant planetary body flyby ever and took place some 6.5 billion kilometres, or 4 billion miles from the Earth, which I think is absolutely fantastic and mind-blowing at the same time.
0: So, close by, and yet at the same time, almost as far as we've ever gone, with uh, the exception of the Voyager probes.
1: Precisely, and I think it's it's a bit of a laugh to say it's in our solar system's backyard when we think of distance, but it's in our backyard. Uh, For astronomers, that is your backyard, pretty (laughs) much. Um, So far, a few images of Ultima have been released and we actually have some preliminary science results, which I will get into. But I want to start with a question that many people usually ask at this point is, what was the purpose of the flyby? Hmm. And I think it's a good question to ask, because often these things are done and we don't know why. So to answer this, we actually need to talk about the Kuiper Belt, and it's a disk-shaped region beyond the orbit of Neptune, filled with icy bodies and comets. So this region actually contains the leftovers from our solar system's early history, and this frozen realm is filled with unchanged leftovers. So basically, you can think of the Kuiper Belt as the refrigerator. So storing the leftovers from the formation of our solar system. So if we start to study those objects in great detail, we'll actually get a better understanding of what conditions were like when our solar system formed.
0: Ah, oh, brilliant.
1: So it's kind of like, as I said, raiding your deep freeze. And uh, the further back you go, the further back in time, as we all know, when we discovered that piece of turkey from five Christmases ago, oh, yes, yes, and the <laughs> base of our freezes. So part of the New Horizons mission is to actually explore the Kuiper Belt. So it's part of the New Horizons extended mission. And so basically, after the successful flyby of Pluto, it turned out the New Horizons actually had some fuel left, which is always a good thing. And it meant that they could visit one more object. Hmm. And they sort of hunted in that region in the Kuiper Belt and discovered, using the Hubble Space Telescope, Ultima Thule. And it turned out that it lay within a reasonable reach of New Horizons. And I say reasonable, still one billion miles from oh, yeah. Pluto, but yes. within, for, again, for astronomers, within easy reach, <laughs> um, and that's made it an ideal target. Now, when Ultima Thule was chosen, we didn't know much about it, so more telescopic observations had to be done. And based on what we saw, we knew that it was approximately 30 kilometers or 19 miles in diameter. And if you want a comparison, it's roughly the size of Phobos, the moon of Mars. Moon of
0: Mars yes. Yeah.
1: Um, and we also noted that it was irregularly shaped. Now, from stellar occultations, which is a method used where you study a star and when that light is blocked by an intervening body. So in this case, the intervening body would be... Ultima Ultimately, truly. And from that, they actually determined that the irregular shape was most likely a contact binary. So in other words, you have two objects that are orbiting each other, or a, um, oh, sorry, two objects that are in physical contact, or a closed binary system where you have two objects that are orbiting each other. Mm. We also knew that Ultima had a reddish color, mm. but other than that, we knew nothing. And so any other details would have to wait until the flyby on january 1st so i watched all the live feeds and everything and i know because i was anxious myself that they <laughs> were really worried about the flyby because you know nothing yes. and there's a long communication today we're looking at six hours on the gen- on january 1st
0: so that's the uh, radio communications it takes six hours for it to get from the earth to New Horizons, and then any change would take another six hours to report back. So an extremely long time. It's an
1: extremely long time, and so, of course, I'm sure lots of people chow through their fingernails um, waiting (laughs) for confirmation that, um, importantly, that New Horizons had actually survived the flyby Mm. because it is entering a region that we don't really know much of. Mm. And um, the good news is that we did get confirmation that it survived, um but because of the lengthy communication time between new horizons and the earth as well as an excruciatingly low download rate of 500 bits per second
0: oh which, wow um, um i might actually <laughs> relate
1: to coming from a country with really poor internet service <laughs> um but um, for everybody else who's used to more like megabytes or, giga, you know yes this is extremely slow. so the first images that were actually returned were the lowest resolution images. Mm. So in the very first image, Ultima appeared as a bowling pin shaped blur, um, which is exciting because at least it did confirm that there was an irregular shape to the object. So we could see that in that very low resolution image. But the next day, things improved dramatically with the arrival of a somewhat higher resolution image, um, but more importantly, a color image. And this confirmed that Ultima was indeed a contact binary. So we have the two bodies um, in physical contact, but it turns out it actually looks a bit like a snowman. Um, (laughs) So had the flyby happened just a little bit earlier than January 1st, it would have been a lovely Christmas tree to have an image of a snowman return. But if you look at it, you'll see that one lobe is actually bigger Mm -hmm. than the other. Um, And the color image confirms that it's red. So that's good to know that the observations we did here from the Earth were correct.
0: Confirming them, absolutely, that's
1: good. Um, and that's always the best part of these things is when we've got <laughs> things right from being so far <laughs> away. What we've also seen on, the, uh, on this first image is that Ultima Thule is covered in brighter and darker regions across the surface. So this could suggest topographical feature changes across, uh, across Ultima Thule. We've also noted that the neck region... Which actually connects the two lobes appears significantly brighter than either of the two lobes. Hmm. So when you're looking at your snowman, it does look like it's got a little scarf on its (laughs) neck, which is which is really cute. So I'm quite liking (laughs) the theme that's developing. Um, Scientists actually think that this may be the result of smaller material collecting at the bottom of the two steep slopes of the lobe. So you can imagine, in your mind, you have two very steep steep slopes. (laughs) <laughs> steep slopes of the lobes, that is the tongue twister of, of the day I think, and all this material is just rolling down and collecting around so it.
0: So it's like a, a valley that wraps the entire way around the object yeah. and just fills with stuff.
1: So now you can try to imagine what it would be like to walk from one lobe down into the next yeah. and, and up the <laughs> other side. And from the data scientists have determined that Ultima has a rotation period of around 15 hours. And the rotation period was actually a bit tricky because they weren't sure if it was 15 or 30. But we now have confirmation that it is 15 hours. And we know now that it is 21 miles long. Considering okay. that our estimate, based on observations here from the Earth, put it at 19 miles, it just shows you how powerful stellar occultation is as a method to determine sizes of these distant objects. That's so, good. so, a round of applause to, <laughs> to everyone who did it. That was very, very good. So what have the scientists discovered so far about Ultima based on the images and data that they've received? So the first thing, we see no evidence of rings or satellites larger than one mile in diameter orbiting Ultima. But that doesn't mean that there aren't any rings or satellites. We'll get a better idea as soon as we receive the next batch of images and data. No evidence of an atmosphere again yet, (laughs) as we start to get more data. That should answer that question about whether there is an atmosphere there. We also now know that the color of Ultima actually matches the color of similar worlds in the Kuiper Belt, so all the Kuiper Belt objects seem to have this red color. We also know that Ultima is very dark, and it only reflects about 10% of the light that strikes it. Mm -hmm. So this also highlights why it is so difficult to detect and study objects out in the Kuiper Belt. And it also highlights why we needed the Hubble Space Telescope to discover Ultima in the first place. Um, we also see that the two lobes of Ultima are nearly identical in colour. Um, but I think what the one of the nicest outcomes of this was they weren't sure whether the two lobes, if it was a contact binary, had sort of merged violently mm-hmm. in the past. Um, but it turns out that they're gently in contact. So, what they suspect happened is that the pair were actually one separate bodies, but that they merged billions of years ago at really, really, really low speeds. So something like a couple of miles per hour. Yeah. So again, for astronomers, we're like, no, but we're used to big speeds. Big speeds, and, absolutely. Yeah. And this is incredibly <laughs> slow for us. <laughs> um, so that, that's quite a nice outcome from it. Now, data transmission from New Horizons is paused at Mm -hmm. Uh, It will only resume after the 10th because New Horizons is currently behind the sun. Ah. (laughs) So the sun, the giver of light and heat, is also the giver of radio interference. So we can't do anything at the moment. But once transmission resumes, it's going to take about 20 months for all of the data to be downloaded. So anybody who gets frustrated when a Netflix show (laughs) takes very long, this is what patience is. (laughs) Um,
0: But hopefully worth it.
1: Well, you see, this is where I don't want to say you become Ah. a harbinger of doom, because part of the thing is that uh, New Horizons is moving through space very quickly. Mm. And the smallest speck of dust could destroy the spacecraft. Yes, absolutely. So this is also why they often prioritize the lower resolution stuff to get them through first so you can sure. get something. get something, yeah. So fingers crossed, everything goes well, and New Horizons makes it through space, and I'm going to hope that space is space and empty, just until the data comes down. Yes. Um, and then hopefully we'll be able to get an idea for about what the surface looks like, and also what ultimately is made of. And... They, We suspect that the best color close-up images will be coming in February.
0: Ah, uh, uh, something to look out for, then.
1: Exactly. And something that's also pretty cool to do, which I do on a regular basis, is to head over to the NASA Deep Space Network website, where you can monitor which radio telescopes are communicating with new horizons and watching all of that lovely data come down, hopefully being stored somewhere.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> We've all had that moment where... Yeah, we've downloaded it and then we've accidentally deleted, deleted it. it. yes. Um, so I'll be providing a follow-up to New Horizons in a later podcast to keep you up to date on all the latest science results from the mission.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, so we I'd like to say to
1: watch the space, but it's more like listen to Yes, space. absolutely.
0: I think it's really interesting, particularly uh, that this is an this is object from the Kuiper Belt. It's a contact binary, and... Comet sixty seven P, which was the the uh, the aim of the Rosetta mission, was also a contact binary. It's had a, it had a duck yeah, shape. The to rubber it, ducky. It. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And um, I, I
1: think that was the thing is that um we kind of know that that's what happens. We're seeing a lot of comets that have this shape. Mm. So they're always a contact binary thing. So seeing an object that's still out there in the Kuiper belt that has been unchanged and that it has this shape is also pretty cool. But um, yes, that's exciting stuff Mm. and it just shows our solar system is still cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: as if there was ever any doubt. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Patricia. Um, so it's on to my story now, Then um, You've decided to go with something relatively close by. Um, I've decided to go for something which is absolutely everywhere in the universe, if we are to believe it. Dark matter. Ooh. Yes, absolutely. This very mysterious substance which appears to pervade the entire universe. Uh, it appears to be more than five times as massive as the normal stuff that we can see in the universe. So it, it actually makes up more of the universe than the stuff that you and I are made out of, and everything around us that we are usually used to yeah. is made out of.
1: And that, that in itself is difficult to understand. Y- yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to comprehend.
0: Yeah. Yes, um, and yet we we can't see it. Dark matter is, uh, as far as we can tell, basically completely invisible. Um, it doesn't uh interact or at least very weakly interacts with almost everything in the universe um except in one regard the only way that it really interacts with the rest of the universe is it has a gravitational pull just like all objects with uh with mass um and that means that you can see the effect that it's having on the rest of the universe even if you can't see it directly Um, so uh it was discovered by looking at um, large clusters of galaxies and noticing that um, the cluster was spinning its, its occupants, the galaxies in it, were moving much faster than the mass of the, the cluster appeared to be able to hold on to. Oh. The faster you travel, um, the stronger the force of gravity needs to be in order to keep you bound to this yeah. cluster, and yet these clusters apparently were had to be more massive than they appeared to be in order to hold on to these galaxies. Um, In other places we could see it in the rotation curves of galaxies. So if you measure how fast stuff is moving around its host galaxy um, and measure it as you go further out uh, from the centre of the galaxy, what you would expect to see is that stuff would slow down as you get towards the edge of the galaxy.
1: Like our solar system. Exactly.
0: Things further out in our solar system tend to travel more slowly. but that's not typically what you find. What you often find is that the galaxies uh, are rotating at about the same speed towards the edge as they are towards the centre. At least they are uh, travel- they're rotating much faster towards the edge than we would expect. Again, you need more stuff in that galaxy in order to be able to do that compared to what we can
1: see. Yes, yeah, so I can imagine for those who picked that up, that was quite a moment of head scratching.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because
1: it didn't match what we were expecting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and by quite a way, as you can tell. Potentially five times as much dark matter as there is normal matter. Um And another way, which is a more indirect way of of getting to this concept of dark matter or there needing to be something extra is through models of the universe that have been progressed from the early formation of the universe, put in some initial conditions and then allow it to run through to the modern day and compare what you get at the end of the simulation with what's actually out there. Um, And if you don't put dark matter in... It doesn't look like what we have in our current universe. Wow, that's
1: so, really interesting.
0: Yeah, so you need something. Maybe it's dark matter, maybe it isn't. But we seem, we're certainly tending towards dark matter being a definite real thing. Um, but yeah, we can't see it. And that becomes a bit of a problem when you want to try to, to map where this stuff is in the universe to try to determine what it is. Uh, it was once thought that maybe it could be um, just normal matter that, for one reason or another, was was darker. Um, so maybe made out of comets and asteroids and dark gas and all this sort of stuff. Um, that just wasn't being lit up or wasn't emitting light itself.
1: And that is a challenge for astronomers because that is how we study everything. is We're looking at things in different wavelength bands because you may not see visible light. Yeah. But all of a sudden switch to radio and there's there object. it is,
0: absolutely. And yeah, exactly. We do almost all of astronomy, with, with very few exceptions, with light. So if things are not being lit up, often we just can't see them. However, it was quickly realised that there was no way that there was that much dark stuff, normal stuff, out there to be able to make up this vast fraction of the universe that we couldn't see. So it had to be something else. And what we think is most likely is something called a weakly interacting massive particle, or a WIMP for short. Um, And these are subatomic particles or um, uh, uh, individual particles, uh, a little bit like electrons or protons in some regards, um, but for one reason or another, they just don't interact with things. They're very weakly interacting with the rest of the universe, except that they have lots of mass, and so they have gravity. So we need to try to work out where this dark matter is. We need to be able to study it in order to try to understand what these particles actually are, if indeed that is what um, dark matter is. Um, So what's the solution to finding something that you can't see?
1: Yeah, and I was just about to say, that is a very difficult thing. How do you (laughs) find something that you just can't see?
0: Well, thankfully, uh, there are some ways to do it. As I said, you can see its effects on other things, Um, but also that means if it has its own gravity, that means that it pulls on things. And so it can effectively grab hold of and hold on to things that we can see. For example, hot gas found inside vast clusters of galaxies. So the vast majority of the the normal matter, the stuff that you and I are made out of, um, is bound into these tightly knit galaxies that we see, these bright points of light that we can see in the Hubble Space Telescope images, and those sort of things. Um, But some material, some gas, leaks off out into the rest of this vast cluster of galaxies. And instead of being bound to a single galaxy, it's instead bound to the cluster as a whole. And because we think that this dark matter cloud permeates the whole of the cluster rather than just being bound to a single galaxy, we would expect this hot gas to fill this dark matter uh, halo that we call Ah, it. that's very interesting. And hot gas, you can't often see with optical light, visible light, the type of light that we can see with our eyes. The best way to look for it is in x-rays. And so many x-ray observations have been made and found this intracluster gas. um, And it has, to a certain extent, followed the profile of where we expect dark matter to be. But there are issues with using x-rays. For one thing, it can only really be done from in space. There are only a handful of telescopes capable of doing what we need to to see this intracluster gas, things like XMM-Newton or Chandra, um, which are space-based x-ray missions. The other big problem with uh, x-rays is that it is tough to see small details. Um, X-rays have this tendency, w- the way that we measure them, has this tendency to be somewhat spread out. So it's like everything is being blurred, like you've, your, um, your lens is dirty, basically, and everything's uh, blurred out a bit, okay. and you can't see detail quite so easily. What we would love is to be able to do it with something where we can get nice pinpoint images, like the Hubble Space Telescope, which works in visible light, optical light. So how do we do that? Well, one suggestion uh, made by uh, the authors of this paper, Montes and, I'm going to pronounce this completely wrong, Trujillo, Tru- Tru- something along those lines, um, They uh, they have suggested, and I believe it's been suggested before, that... Hot gas is not the only thing that we be found between these galaxies in this vast cluster. Uh, when galaxies interact, they sometimes pull stars off of one another, so strip entire streams of stars. And these stars are no longer bound to any one galaxy. They're instead left to sort of float freely around this cluster. So while the vast majority of stars will be found in the, in the galaxies themselves, a handful, and hopefully enough, will be found just randomly floating around the rest of the cluster. And as long as there are enough of them, they are spread out enough, so they've had enough time to spread through this dark matter halo, and they are bright enough, frankly, to be able to see them, very, very sensitive detectors, like the Hubble Space Telescope, like the James Webb Space Telescope, which is on its way, um, would be able to see this intracluster light. So the the stars' light between these galaxies, but still filling this dark matter halo. Um, And so the findings of this paper were that uh, while X-ray light can Follow. It can trace the the um, the the light of uh, sorry the, the where this dark matter is in this cluster. Uh, it's often found in sort of streams or specific regions which don't necessarily represent the rest of the cluster. And also those problems that we suggested before with getting uh, nice images made in X-rays with nice high-resolution images is quite tough. This intra-cluster light might just be able to do it. There seems to be a much better correlation between the dark matter, where we expect to find this dark matter, um, and where we find these uh, intracluster stars. So the hope is that this intracluster light, these stars, which have become separated from their host galaxies, but are now flying around the rest of the, the cluster free, most for the most part, to follow the, where the dark matter leads, might just be able to give us a better view on where this dark matter is. And hopefully a better insight into how dark matter exists in the rest of our universe and therefore maybe even what it is.
1: Yeah, and I mean that would be a, a fantastic answer to get because it's just a mystery at the moment. and. And I think this is one of the exciting parts about looking forward to future space missions. So the James Webb Space Telescope, I think, is going to really make a huge leap forward in terms of our understanding and pushing back the frontiers again. And I think Mm. that this is a very exciting area that um, I didn't even realise James Webb would it would be one of the projects that yeah. they could actually carry across on yeah, onto the James Webb Space Telescope, and I mean, Hubble's been great, but we we it's we need the new generation of space telescopes. Absolutely,
0: now. I mean, uh, Hubble's 27, 28 years yeah. old now. It's twenty eight years old. I just realised. Um, yes, it's uh, and yet it's still one of the best telescopes that we have yeah. access to. Um, James Webb won't be a direct replacement for Hubble. It doesn't have the ability to do ultraviolet, which Hubble does. Um, But in other areas, particularly in the infrared um, and in the red light, uh, visible light, it will be absolutely fantastic. It will be able to see fainter clusters of stars within these deep clusters of galaxies out there in the rest of the universe. So hopefully we will be able to start charting the universe in dark matter, um, which would be quite an achievement. Yeah, we can
1: look forward to to that. That would just be mind blowing. To here's your map of the universe in dark matter, and yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's it. Two new news stories for you to vote on on our Twitter poll at Rog Astronomers. Um, last month, uh, Dara and I we presented another two stories. Dara was talking about our robotic family on Mars, the only planet we know of in the universe to be uh, entirely populated by robots. I was talking about the search for the elusive solar twin, our siblings uh, amongst the stars. Uh, with 75% of the votes. I'm afraid I did win that one uh, again but I'm sure that uh, this month Patricia will be able to put up a really good fight with her new story. Uh, as I say, please vote for those at ROG Astronomers and tune in next month for more from Look Up. <laughs>